Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer in residence here at the college, and you can read what I write at alatea.org or excorde.org. And today I want to speak about the nun's narrative. I recently gave a talk at the uh, Symposium for Transforming Culture here at Benedictine College, where a bunch of people got together and talked about how to use community to transform culture. With a great, great talk at the end by Sherry Waddell, who wrote the Intentional Disciples book, which she said I think is extremely relevant to what I have to say. In fact, she was at my talk and helped contribute at the end. But her point is that God doesn't have any grandchildren. Uh, what she means is that nobody receives the faith by osmosis. The next generation never just becomes Catholic and stays Catholic. Each generation has to be re-won for the gospel. Uh, and that fit very well with uh, what I remarked about at the symposium. My talk was about how you should not buy the nun's narrative, nuns being N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Uh, so the nuns are this group of Catholics, Christians, uh, folks who would have been Catholic or Christian, but now mark nun on forms when they're asked what their religion is, the N-O-N-E-S. Uh, and there's a certain narrative that has grown up around these people that I wanted to challenge. So prominent voices in the media point to the numbers of Catholics leaving the church in America and conclude young people are choosing science and secularism over faith. The church sees this problem and the best of the best in the church, such as Bishop Robert Barron, are rushing to answer it. He's showing the reasonability of the faith and its compatibility with science, which is awesome. I'm glad they're doing that. Uh, we're going to be doing that here at Ex Corde as well. I think it's absolutely necessary to do that. But at the same time, I'm convinced that it's not concerns over science uh, that caused the nuns to leave. The nuns weren't offered two proposals in their life, faith or secularism, and chose the latter. I think they were offered one proposal in their life, secularism, and then chose that. For instance, it's true that Catholics aren't going to Sunday Mass, but when was the last time you heard from a priest or bishop that it is a grave matter and likely a mortal sin to miss Sunday Mass? I never have. I only know it from my own study and from being part of a very aware subculture of Catholics. And when I was editor at the National Catholic Register, we published a guide telling people that skipping Sunday Mass was a common mortal sin. And highly educated, committed Catholics wrote into us saying, surely that can't be true. Another sign of the rise of the nuns is Georgetown's CARA research, which shows that the numbers of baptisms rose with the population you know, in the 70s and 80s, but then have dropped every five years since 2000 by hundreds of thousands with each new survey. So Catholics today don't feel the need to get their babies baptized. But again, why would they? When have you ever heard a priest or bishop say you should baptize your baby? Most Catholics would be hard-pressed to explain why on earth a baby would need to be baptized. I have actually asked 
aware, well-educated, faithful Catholics, why should a baby be baptized? And they can't answer. I have a hard time explaining it myself. I have to marshal my thoughts and force my mind to think in a new way that I don't usually think of in order to explain why a baby has to be baptized. Confirmations and First Communions are also dropping as our marriages, every single sacrament. Catholics, on the other hand, are statistically better at giving and volunteering than the unchurched. That's something we are frequently exhorted to do. So the real crisis isn't a crisis of those who increasingly check none when asked what their religion is, but those who have never given them a reason to check anything else. I want to talk about three epiphany experiences I had in my own life to get a better handle on this problem. Then I'm going to try to point to some evidence that I'm not alone. My first religious epiphany experience was at age seven when my class received First Communion. As part of her instruction, our teacher decided that it would be a good idea to have the priest take the ciborium out of the tabernacle and to take us there to see what a tabernacle is. She opened the sanctuary gate, which was still in use at the time, and we walked into the Holy of Holies and I felt around inside the tabernacle. As I think I've explained before on this podcast, this was a Wizard of Oz moment in my life where I suddenly realized that there was nothing in this ornate box that everyone was bowing to. It was a life-altering epiphany for me. It was reinforced by the fact that confession wasn't required for my first communion. We received confession a year later. There was no connection between sin and communion. In fact, confession was treated as something totally unnecessary. I went when I was eight for the first time, and I never went back until college. Nobody asked me to or expected me to or really mentioned it at all. And when I gave this talk at the symposium, one of the other speakers told me that she hadn't been given confession until the seventh grade after receiving communion at age seven. So our generation heard nothing about sacramental forgiveness, and we learned nothing about the real presence. Years later, when, as an adult, I told my brother about the real presence, he thought I was making it up like I was mixed up with some group of Catholic extremists who believed something strange about communion. I, for one, was not shocked when a poll came out that said that only a third or fewer of Catholics believe in the real presence. Why would people believe in the real presence? It was never taught, never discussed at many parishes. I actually found the poll to be good news. I was surprised that so many people had heard about the real presence. So my epiphany experience as a child was realizing that the tabernacle was empty and being taught that God was a benign uncle who forgave everything I did right away such that, in effect, he didn't really care what I did. So I stopped going to church. This was in no way a rejection of what I was taught. I took what I had been taught at face value and believed it and acted on it. They taught me that it didn't matter if I went to Mass or not, so I didn't go. In high school, I refused to be confirmed because why would I be confirmed? The very thought was absurd. I think I was very much a typical example of the nuns, not someone who heard the religious proposal and rejected it, but someone who heard the religious proposal and believed it, and it taught me that the church didn't matter. My second epiphany experience was just after college. Though I never sought a Catholic education, I ended up by happenstance in a hardcore Catholic great books program among people who went to Mass daily and confession frequently, and I fell in with them. I think I've told that story here before also. 
Stephen Voulevant is an author who also spoke at the conference. He said he became Catholic by Stockholm Syndrome. He was joking, but he said he was hanging around Catholics and kind of naturally picked up what they were doing. And then, bizarrely, he said he went to Blackfriars College in Oxford and learned from Dominicans. Well, exactly the same thing happened to me. I both became Catholic by Stockholm Syndrome and ended up studying at Blackfriars College for a year in Oxford, England for my year abroad program. I went on pilgrimages to Rome, Lourdes, and Fatima, and I embraced the faith in a huge way and fell in love with that other Oxford man, John Henry Newman. After college, I ended up couch surfing in San Francisco and spent practically my last $54 on a copy of Newman's Plain and Parochial Sermons. The book riveted me. I read it constantly and even read it out loud to my friends on car trips, which is probably why I stopped being invited by my friends on car trips. But one thing the book made very clear to me was the reality of heaven and hell. The very first sermon is called Holiness Necessary for Future Blessedness. And Newman writes, Holiness, or inward separation from the world, is necessary to our admission into heaven because heaven is not heaven, is not a place of happiness except to the holy. It is fearful, he wrote, but it is right to say it, that if we wish to imagine a punishment for an unholy, reprobate soul, we perhaps could not fancy a greater than to summon it to heaven. Heaven would be hell to an irreligious man. He went on to say, An unholy man would be as unhappy in heaven as we are with strangers who are committed to something that we don't care about or whose language we couldn't understand and couldn't learn. He said, God cannot change his nature. Holy he must ever be. But while he is holy, no unholy soul can be happy in heaven. Now, it's impossible for me to exaggerate how much this changed my life. It changed the way I thought of God. God is not a heavenly policeman enforcing rules. He's holiness itself. And our decision to accept or reject him is less like the decision to break the speeding limit and more like the decision to use sunscreen or not. The sun will burn you and you can either acknowledge that the sun is real or pretend it's not. Pretending the sun is not a furnace of ultraviolet rays will mean a lot of physical pain and suffering in your life from sunburn for days at a time. Pretending that God is not an all-consuming fire of holiness will mean a lot of spiritual pain and suffering for eternity. Newman made my eternal destination a significant center of my life. I knew I had to get my life in order to become the kind of person who would be at home with God for eternity. That meant prayer. It meant behavioral changes. I kid you not that to this day, Newman is the only reason I go to Mass. I don't like Mass very much. I don't enjoy the Novus Ordo Mass. I don't like the Extraordinary Form Mass. I like the Community of the Lamb Mass some, but I get antsy even there. But I never miss Mass because I need to understand it and be assimilated to it to be ready for death. I also only do the small service I do for the poor because I've read Matthew chapter 25, and I know that I will face the eternal judge one day and he will ask me what I did for the poor. As Archbishop Shapu likes to say, if you don't serve the poor, you will go to hell, and I don't want to go to hell. I'm absolutely driven by hell, but also by heaven, death, and judgment. 
One of the truly insightful stories in Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels is the land of Lugnag, where people are immortal. They can't die, and therefore they have no ambition, and they achieve nothing, because without death, there is only apathy. My spiritual life was exactly like that before I accepted the reality of heaven and hell. I had an immortal soul that would be given a free pass by an eternal God, so I didn't care to do anything to better myself. Once I learned that the reality was actually very different, I was scared straight. A third epiphany moment came during the COVID-19 pandemic. Ever since I had my own epiphany moment about heaven and hell, I've spent my career writing articles in support of the Catholic Church and Catholic spirituality. After a few years in secular newspapers and on Capitol Hill, I was editor of the National Catholic Register and then with my wife, co-editor of Faith and Family magazine. And through all those years, I was painfully aware of all the problems in the church, but I understood why that was okay in one respect. The church is holy in her origin, which is Jesus Christ, in her means, which are Jesus Christ and the sacraments, and in her ends, which is delivering eternal life in Jesus Christ. Yes, the church is filled with sinners, but she has always been and will always be. The church to me was a sacraments delivery vehicle. She had many problems, but her fundamental purpose was to deliver the sacraments, and that's what she did. That's what she existed for. It was only when COVID came and I saw the sacraments shut down worldwide to one degree or another that I realized the truth. McDonald's thought it was important to find a way to provide hamburgers in the pandemic. Banks knew we had to have money in the pandemic, but the church dropped the sacraments right away. But we need the sacraments more than hamburgers and money. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely see that it can be necessary for the church to abrogate the Sunday obligation in a time of pandemic. This has happened throughout church history. But neither the church nor anyone else can abrogate the third commandment, and it was startling to me that the church in so many places did next to nothing to help its flocks keep holy the Sabbath. We were very blessed here in Atchison with priests who kept confession going throughout the pandemic. But in many places, priests who dared to hear confessions were disciplined by their bishops during the pandemic. And that's when it dawned on me. The church in our times is no longer a sacraments delivery vehicle. The great sin of our time is not any scandalous sin of commission, and we've had plenty. It's a massive sin of omission. The church in practice had a lot more in common with the false epiphany I experienced at age seven the church of the empty tabernacle, than with the true epiphany I experienced at age 21, the church that prepares us for eternity with God. And I think the research suggests that I'm not alone. I want to rely here on a Notre Dame study called Understanding Former Young Catholics, produced in 2018, which is under the name of Nicolette Manglos Weber, but also Christian Smith. The Notre Dame report cited data that showed that a half of Catholic teenagers lose their Catholic identity by their late 20s. But it also said staunch atheism is still fairly uncommon among Americans, and the same holds true for formerly Catholic emerging adults. So they aren't rejecting God. I suspect that, like me, they are embracing the soft religious expectations that were given to them. The Notre Dame report shows that young people often follow their parents' example as regards going to Mass. About 66% of those with two parents 
stayed with their religious faith of their parents. But what strikes me as interesting is those who left the church were far more likely to say their parents went to mass one to three times per month. In other words, parents whose religious life was marked by repeated mortal sin failed to raise Catholic kids, which should not be a surprise. I also like that the survey both showed that parents influenced children and said former Catholic emerging adults tend to be uncomfortable with firm statements about who or what God is. They like to keep such matters open-ended. I, for one, believed exactly that, because that's what I was taught to believe by the Catholics who formed me at home and in the church. I will never forget the advice my brother gave me when I was a child going to CCD. I was afraid to go, thinking they would ask me questions I would be unable to answer. He said, don't worry. If they ask you a question, just say Jesus, caring, or sharing, and the answer will always be right. He was right. The good-natured relativism that has been so prevalent in so many religious education classes and so many Catholic homes has been delivered and has been received. So I hold that there are nuns not because people reject the faith propositions they've been given, but because they accept the weak faith propositions that they were given. And I hold that the church is guilty of enormous sins of omission. In fact, every pope from Pius XII to Francis has said the greatest sin of our time is the loss of the sense of sin. And even after the sex abuse scandals of 2002, when John Paul II talked about the crisis in the church, he spoke of the crisis of the empty confessionals. We Catholics have some vague sense that the need to worry about hell and sin has somehow been lifted from our lives. I know I often felt that way, but it hasn't. The reality that Newman expressed is still real. God is all holy, and whether or not he will tolerate evil in his presence is not the point. The point is that evil cannot tolerate his presence. And if we are in a state of mortal sin, we cannot tolerate his presence. The catechism compiled in the 1990s teaches that mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom, and sin unconfessed causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell, for our freedom has the power to make choices forever with no turning back. And while it is absolutely true that God is a God of mercy, and that the greater the sinner, the greater the right to his mercy, in each of the synoptic gospels, Jesus says that one sin is unforgivable, the sin against the Holy Spirit. The catechism describes that sin this way. There are no limits to the mercy of God, but anyone who deliberately refuses to accept his mercy by repenting rejects the forgiveness of his sins and the salvation offered by the Holy Spirit. Such hardness of heart can lead to final impenitence and eternal loss. In other words, the loss of the sense of sin is the one sin that even divine mercy cannot touch. And we live in a time that has lost the sense of sin, lost the belief that we have to repent. This, not the sex abuse crisis, is the great sin of our time. In fact, it's the motor that powers all the other sins of our time. When Jesus speaks about the abuse of children, he doesn't say, whoever sins against one of these little ones. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Of course, sexual predators have to worry about this because they both sin against a child and cause a cycle of sin 
that is irreparable in many cases. But it also means you and I should have to worry. He says that people who don't teach children the Ten Commandments would be better off with a millstone because not teaching children right from wrong also can cause irreparable damage. So I have a few suggestions of what to do now. First, don't make the mistake of thinking that Catholics disagree with what the church teaches them. Often we think, what's the point in teaching people things because they don't care what the church teaches anyway? I think they do, and I think they're deeply formed by what the church teaches. And I actually made a point to the, um, to the symposium audience that I've made here before on the podcast, how Pope John Paul II in his document at the beginning of the new millennium said that there are four priorities for the church to do. First is to promote Sunday Mass. Not daily Mass, not Eucharistic adoration, but Sunday Mass. And sure enough, as I mentioned before, I've found that whenever I invite someone to Sunday Mass, they are very open to coming along. Second is to promote confession. Not divine mercy or sacred heart devotion, which are great, but confession yearly or when conscious of mortal sin. And again, I've experienced several times that merely mentioning to somebody that confession is still a thing and still a positive force in my life has caused people to return to confession. And it just so happens that Sunday Mass and confession also prepare you for the heaven of Newman. Sunday Mass is literally reenacting what's going on in the heavenly liturgy. And confession is the way to get into the state of grace that can tolerate being in the presence of God. The other two things that Pope John Paul II asked us to promote in the 21st century were acts of service and daily prayer. Now, both of these are basic things you have to do to prepare yourself to go to heaven. You have to be able to talk to God, and you learn that through prayer. And you have to be the kind of person who serves God in the icons of Jesus Christ that are all around us in those in need. And so my first suggestion is to promote Sunday Mass, confession, service, and prayer. My second suggestion was don't stick to the positive story about Jesus. Instead, I think we should do what Our Lady of Fatima and Pope Francis do. Our Lady of Fatima has been in the news because of the consecration of Russia and Ukraine on March 25th. But I think it gives us an important lesson in how to speak to people in general and children in particular. 105 years ago this May, Mary started appearing to a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 7-year-old. Then after Our Lady appeared to them, she appeared to them every month. And in July, she showed them a terrible vision of hell which horrified them and caused two things to happen in their lives. First, they were entranced by the vision of heaven that the angel and the beautiful lady represented. And second, they were inspired to intense sacrifice for sinners by the horror of hell. And they did two things after that. They started to spend hours in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and they started sacrificing for sinners. In other words, they longed for the radical holiness of God and reacted with horror to separation from God. And the fact is, every American activist movement makes both of these moves. The no smoking movement teaches both that the health of a non-smoker is desirable and that the painful death of a smoker is undesirable. The environmental movement teaches both that the beauty of nature is worth preserving and that the destruction of the world will follow if we keep polluting the atmosphere. Likewise, if you want to tell people that the life of Jesus is great and will make you happier and more fulfilled, 
then you'll probably get a lot of people to believe you. But if you don't tell them that without Jesus, they will be unable to go anywhere but hell when they die, then that gives them an even extra reason to follow Jesus. And it's true. That is what will happen. When we die, we will go to a place where Jesus lives in holy splendor with the all-consuming fire that is God, and we will be uncomfortable in his presence if we too are not holy. In fact, don't take my word for this. Look to Pope Francis. Remember when there was a big scandal about how Francis doesn't believe in hell and never talks about it? The secular media reported it, and those on the left were saying, yeah, that's good. He doesn't believe in hell. He shouldn't. And Catholics on the right were denouncing the Pope. Well, it seemed like hardly anybody did what I did, which was search hell on the Vatican website and limit results to the words of Pope Francis. But I did that, and I found again and again Pope Francis warning people about hell. He warned mafiosos that if they kept doing what they were doing, they would go to hell. Then in his Lenten message to ordinary Catholics, he said, if you're not willing to serve the poor, you will go to hell. And then he even said that we need to teach children about hell, and we shouldn't be squeamish about telling them about hell because it's true. So my second suggestion is to give the true story of Jesus Christ, not just the positive, uh, but the fact that there's a negative dimension as well. Or maybe a better way to put it would be to teach about heaven, hell, death, and judgment. My third suggestion is this. Now more than ever, people need to know that they matter. I don't know if you've ever met children who've lacked nearly any discipline at all in their lives, but I have, and they tend to be unhappy and depressed. Why? Because If it doesn't matter what you do, you don't matter. If no one cares how you behave, no one cares about you. If God doesn't care if you sin, then God doesn't care if you do good. But God does care, and you do matter. The existence of heaven and hell means that everything is meaningful. There is true greatness in everything around me. God is more real than I can imagine. Now, if we see through a glass darkly, there we will see him face to face. If I shrink from his reflected light here below, I will run from his all-consuming fire in the hereafter. What attracts me in his reflected light here below will flood me in the hereafter. I like to think about this in terms of It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life purports to tell you that every life matters and that if you weren't ever born, it would leave an awful hole in the universe. Well, I think the movie's great, but I can see why George Bailey's life mattered. He saved somebody as a child, and that person went on to save a plain load of people. He ran a savings and loan, which gave people homes. Well, I never saved anybody's life, and I've never given anybody a home. So maybe if my life wasn't here, there wouldn't be an awful hole in the universe. But in fact, I can make a bigger difference than George Bailey, an eternal difference, by promoting the sacraments that lead to heaven and by sacrificing for sinners and keeping them out of hell. If the church did this, and I mean if bishops, priests, consecrated people, and lay people did this, if they promoted the sacraments and sacrificed for sinners, then the culture would change overnight to one that is happier, holier, and yes, Catholic. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. 
Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.